I am the master, and you will obey me. Listen to Dan Hadley on Type 40, a Doctor Who podcast, or face the consequences. for Type 40, your Doctor Who podcast from the Spacebook for the Fandom Podcast Network, with me, Dan Hadley, Birmingham's King of the Geeks, and your designated driver. Now, it could be you're completely new to the show and our entire time stream, or you've been aboard before. Well, whichever, you're going to find an eclectic, eccentric, free-speaking, big-thinking show for everyone. Whatever decade or century you started watching, reading, or listening along to the adventures of our hero, Doctor Who, and with a new season just launched on BBC One and broadcasters and platforms all over the world, for the next few weeks we're making our way through this six-part run, now known as Doctor Who Flux, being sure to throw in a few laughs along the way, as always. So come and step into our TARDIS and share this journey together here with us on Type 40. Yes, once again we're back for a new series of Doctor Who that's coming off the telly. Yes, there's no fool like an old fool. <laughs> I'm back despite uh, struggling through series 12, but it's not like I could abandon it there, is it? It's Doctor Who for life, that's what, that's what I always say. So yes, we're going to be reviewing those brand new episodes of the world's longest running sci-fi and fantasy show as they materialise as near to broadcast as we can possibly make them. And for Type 40, this is kind of where we came in, where we started. So it's only fitting that uh, for another season premiere, we welcome back to the console room. He's not going to let me suffer alone, is he? Let's welcome back Carl Wagner. I have watched Doctor Who Flux episode one and the Eternals within a 48-hour period. My brain hurts. <laughs> you sure you don't need a few more hours? <laughs> uh, come back to this know. later. I'm having a sense of deja vu, though, Dan. I got to tell you. Oh, really? <laughs> start of another season, and I'm here on Type 40. You've come so far in such a short time. <laughs> We're pretty much propping each other apart. We through through another run of Chris Chibnall led and Joda with starring episodes of Doctor Who. They're trying to mark this set out as something different. We now get uh, chapters 
on screen rather than uh, episodes, for example, or the more time-honoured sort of classic-friendly label of part one, part two. But apart from that, we're going to see whether you feel like they've given it a new injection, a new lease of life and of Artron energy, or whether it is business as usual. From Chris Chibnall's Doctor Who, we'll find out as we're going along. We've got somebody else to bring to the console room too, fresh from our Series 13 preview show. Yes, that didn't put her off. Charlotte Shields back on the show. It should have, shouldn't it? It really should have, but I'm here. (laughs) Yeah, we worked our way through that valiantly. But now, of course, the pictures, they move, don't they? And the voices, the actors, they talk and we can judge, can't we? We've had this first 50-minute chunk. We've had a few days, haven't we, to to chew our way through it. And uh, you've had time to back out, but she's still here. here. How's how's your week been, though, apart from that? (laughs) She's a very brave girl. Oh, no, it's been good, except from that Sunday night. Everything else was brilliant after that. watched the episode. (laughs) End your weekend with with, uh, a trip in the TARDIS with Jodie Whittaker and Maldip Gill and John Bishop, the the new core cast of Doctor Who. We're going to find out what we all thought of this new dynamic, the fresh lineup for Doctor Who, as the uh, Jodie Whittaker era works its way to its conclusion. But before we get too deep into the good stuff, only right that I remind you that if you'd like to do some real-time travelling of your own, each and every edition of this show, past, present and future, is just a tap or two away on the device of your choice if you know where to look. There's dozens of great conversations, reviews, previews, geek outs and deep dives with regular panellists. We know there's something for every fan at type40.podbean.com. There'll be more about all of that a little later on as well as a making contact with the matrix of all knowledge that we call the Fandom Podcast Network for a word about all the other cult conversations about all the other fictional universes that are going on over there. The word flux, it's a very curious thing. I thought it sounded like something that you would use to clear, uh, clean off barbecue utensils with, you know, rub it in deep and see if you can get all the bits of, all the bits of gunk off. But what did you think flux meant, Kyle? It meant that they had a word that rhymed with something else that a lot of people are taking advantage of. But but in all seriousness, I mean, flux feels kind of like a word that would fit with the doctor in, in some aspects of it. It's just, I think we're at this point where, one, we have no idea what Chibnall's doing. And point number two is, with all the news that's happened recently, do we truly care? You could have called it, I think, and this might be tipping my hand a little bit, but you could have called this Doctor Who lame duck, and it would have probably fit better than Flux. Oh, this is going to be a bumpy ride, everybody. Sorry, Chris. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yes, yeah, so it started with the first chapter of Doctor Who Flux. This is the Halloween apocalypse. And uh, the plot, If you, in case you, you didn't catch it, or you may have forgotten in the time in between... It went something like this. At Halloween, across the universe, terrifying forces are stirring from the Arctic Circle to deep space. An ancient evil is breaking free. And in present-day Liverpool, the life of Dan Lewis is about to change forever. I keep getting his name wrong. I keep thinking it's Dan West. Dan Lewis, Dan West. Why are they both sound like TV TV detectives? I think that's what it is, Charlotte. Are you you crossing your Doctor Who with Lost in Space, maybe? Don West? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, that's of course, that's it. Oh, God. It's a good job I've got these guys to keep me in check, isn't it? This is a six episode 
story. This is the first time that Doctor Who's done this sort of real umbrella-type storytelling for 35 years since The Trial of a Time Lord, which starred Colin Baker. That ran for 14 weeks, all in all. It's a, uh, how can I put this, a high-concept idea or higher concept than we've been used to. It's a very bold thing to do, isn't it, Charlotte? But ultimately... The problem is with the audience, with the general viewing public, either at home in Great Britain or abroad, I think with this show now, people already know, don't they, before the first minute of the first episode has begun, people know whether they are in for six weeks or not. I think people have already already made their minds up about this series of Doctor Who, whether they're in or out. What do you think? I think it's more they've made their minds up about the era. It's not so much the yeah. series... We've now had two series before this where he had every opportunity to impress us. Most Doctors, you click with them by the end of their first episode or at a push their first series. So Jodie's had ample time as well. This whole production team has had ample time to get us excited. And the problem is they they failed so miserably. That's sort of like what, what Carl was getting at. People are fed up. They're tired. They're not willing to give any more chances. And I think that's fair. Because how many how many chances do you give somebody until you just go, no, I'm not going to get myself in that position where I'm either not enjoying watching the show or literally angry <laughs> considering what Chibnall is trying to do by the looks of it with the Timeless Child story arc. So conceptually, this could be seen, Kyle, as a swing for the back fence. This kind of multi-stranded storytelling does Flux, does the Halloween apocalypse have a framework? I'm not entirely sure. That framework and a plan is probably bigging it up too much. But I think for any viewers of shows like Lost, or particularly 24, and we all know that Chris Gibnall's a big fan of 24, don't we? And this does, potentially, this could be one five-hour countdown clock, in theory. This was a trend from TV of a decade ago, Kyle. I've actually, I put some thought into this particular thing because... I'm looking at this. This is a double-edged sword. First of all, when I say, like I said earlier, Doctor Who's coming in already this season as a lame duck. Not only because people are so fed up with what's happened with the Chimnall air, but because we know Russell's coming back. And so people are just like, okay, fine, whatever. They're not going to do anything. Russell's going to change things, and we're not going to even remember this. But when I flip this over and I look at this, and this is where I want to look at Chimnall and go, why didn't you do this first? If this would have been what Chris, this idea executing of when Chris Chibnall first took over as a doctor, and people see this as like, whoa, I think a lot of people have been like, whoa, this is a new doctor who we're seeing something different. In the mixing up of the format as well. Yeah, in the mixing up of the format. I think if this would have been this idea and this concept would have been let off, if this would have been the first season of Chibnall and Jody, I think people would probably be a lot more interested in it, a lot more curious about it, about it because now we're seeing, whoa, we're, they're, they're completely flipping the table on Doctor Who, whether they would like it or not, that's a whole other thing. But I think people would be more interested about it. At this point now, it just feels like everything that Chimnall does from this point forward doesn't matter. I think he's just going to throw all the crazy stuff at the wall, whatever sticks, sticks, whatever doesn't, doesn't. I think all of it's going to slide off like Teflon. Maybe there's a few cool concepts here or there, but it's too little too late. The, 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 the ship has sailed and it is, yeah. you can't bring it back. It does feel like everything, literally everything, has been thrown at the wall in exactly the same way as you describe. And some pretty sort of, again, pretty bold stylistic choices in this that you can either stand or fall on. But 
to make them now three seasons in where in my view a third season is the place where we should be kind of anticipating the the demise of the characters who are going to depart at the end of it we should be soaking in the relationships between them and in the goodwill and and deepened lore that the last two or three or longer series worth of stories have sort of built up that isn't what this feels like at all you're right it does feel like a do-over up to a point and i haven't got any problem necessarily with this kind of high concept idea in principle i've just got a problem with it coming from chris chibnall charlotte yeah and it's also we it's never felt like we've got a good idea what this year was trying to tell us because every oh. series it's like it's trying to have a new bold idea to get us to watch and it doesn't feel like if you compare it to russell and moffat every series felt like it was building off the other one and it, you could you sort of went on that journey with them and with chibnall like series 13 there was no monsters we recognized so that put people off but that made that series stand out and then series 12 we got monster the monsters we knew come back but he had the massive retcon at the end and now he's doing a six-part story so there's no stability into what his if you wanted to say like creative voice or vision it just isn't there and it just feels like every series Chibnall's had to go back and almost say what can I do to get them excited this time and as a showrunner he shouldn't be doing that he should be know his ideas and should be able to carry them through at a good stage of development for each one and it just it almost feels like we've had a different showrunner every series a little bit with Chibnall. I don't know if I'd I don't know if I'd say that but I think we've had a restrained Chris Chibnall because for me a lot of what we're seeing in here they are moves straight out of the Broadchurch playbook there's lots of pensive gazing for example and foreboding music and lingering on people's faces just that bit too much and exchange of dialogue which are pretty much free of any context whatsoever i mean there's a couple of characters in victorian england talking about digging a pit or a well or a hole or something they're in a scene right at the start of the halloween apocalypse and we don't see them again until the end to so much to the point that by the end of the episode, Carl, I'd completely forgotten who those two guys were and yeah. what was going on. And we I don't think we'll get the payoff of that until week six. I, I really don't. And, and I can't help but wonder, for a series that is on its final, final chance with the, with the British public, certainly in this incarnation, that to hit them with this many things at once, this much, much sort of that's disconnected, and hard to decode. Very, very foolhardy at best. When I watched this, I, I felt like what Chibnall was doing is, I'm going to grab a little bit here from Russell, I'm going to grab a little bit here from Moffat, you know, and he's trying yeah. to just stick pieces together. Well, he's been trying to ape Russell's work for the last two years, but keeps yeah. coming up against the same barrier, that same frustrating lack of talent. Well, and I think his own control issues have also affected that. But is part of the problem by the time... Russell T. Davies and Stephen Moffat left. Doctor Who episodes were too much stuck into a formula that they had to fit, and the, the now Chibnall can never oh, really figure question. out that figure out that formula. And now we're now it's just like everything's just chaos. Kyle, I don't think. I mean, I know this is a broader question, but I don't think he's ever really had a take. And I, you know, Russell had his take. Stephen certainly had his take with this sort of picture book fantasy version of the show 
and I don't think Chris Chibnall ever had a take other than I'll change the Doctor into a woman. That was his take. That was it. It's a, a gimmick is not a take. But I think there are, and I think you're probably right about Doctor Who storytelling. Uh, the right person at the right time, and I believe that there are lots of doc, of um, TV industry creatives out there of, of different age groups who could have come to this show and had a, a real fresh take. But both men and women who've been working in television for anywhere between five and twenty years who could have come in absolutely hungry and with a take that would have been nothing like either Stevens or Russell's. Instead, we got this weird hybrid. I think he's definitely trying to channel Stephen Moffat in this Charlotte, to to bring us the timey-wimey, to bring, okay, so you didn't like that, maybe you'll like this, because it, it's important to remember as well that the Halloween apocalypse, this production block, this is the first set of episodes that we've had since the impact, because Series 11 and Series 12, Series 12 went into production really quite soon, within, within about eight weeks of Series 11 finishing, there was very little time in between, so they were all written. This is the first block of Doctor Who since the impact of those first 20 odd episodes, the big slide in viewing figures and the undoubted failure of these characters to really catch on I would say, despite everything that's been said publicly Charlotte that they have taken that in and they may, you know, we know that this was originally that Flux was supposed to begin filming in September 2020, but it had to be postponed to the November of 2020 because of the coronavirus. And the pandemic has been mentioned several times in publicity for this as being a reason why this and a reason why that. I think that is very convenient and that some of the statements are a little disingenuous and and that something akin to this was always going to have to be where Chris Chibnall went because everything else had turned people off so much. Yeah, this this really felt like a Moffat sort of almost parody because the skill with Moffat, even though sometimes he could get tied up in his own plots too much and he could yeah. have a bit of so much too much going on for his own good, you could tell that Chibnall wanted this sort of the the idea of that Moffat could do very well, which was multiple threads. That's what I got from watching this. He wanted to have quite a lot of threads, quite a lot of characters all at once and then like you said we know like the victorian gentleman like dan's girlfriend like a quite a few other threads you knew that they were just there to be there and then in a couple weeks or whatever episode that happens to be the 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 episode they come up in we'd get the full story but for me that's what my issue was with this it was too much when it came to characters and threads so in some instances, we didn't even know what they were afraid of or talking about. Well, no, and I think the problem is once I felt like just when I was getting used to one character, I got thrown to another storyline. Like I said, Moffat had a skill at this. When he could do this, it was magic when he could have so many things going on and you didn't feel it. Yeah, I think it the you'd punch the was, air, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, I think the problem was this felt, and I think that's the difference, it when Moffat was on his game, it didn't feel like there was a lot going on. It would be only afterwards when you'd go, oh, God, actually, there was a lot in that. But with this, I felt like it was like, right, and this, and this, and this. And I just got to a point yeah. where I was like, this needs to be streamlined. And if they didn't I'm, like that bit, if they didn't feel yeah. that bit, if they didn't connect to that, then maybe they'll like this. Yeah, and it just, it just I don't think that's a good viewing experience myself. Kyle, I don't want to um, shout down audacity 
and uh, and creativity, and 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 sound really churlish about it because ambition should be applauded, but not delivered like this. What do you think? You have everything going on, and one of the things for me with when I watch Doctor Who is does the threat feel bigger than the Doctor? And I've never. I've felt things are on the same level of the Doctor, but I've never felt like the threat is bigger than the Doctor. And everything that's going on here all feels bigger than the Doctor. And all I kept saying to myself as I was watching this episode is, if Matt Smith is the Doctor in this episode, so much more of this works. It just, it feels like if it was Tennant or Smith as the Doctor... Maybe and you feel even... like he'd make you believe that bit more, that you, even if you weren't sure what was going on, you'd place your faith in him. Exactly, and you have because right now I think Jody just well, Jody's version the series, of the Doctor seems the series has no formidable and productive lead right. as a character and, or as a lead actor. And, and, and I think it's the sad part of Jody's run is that I think she's she's made the Doctor feel like the Doctor gets lucky, doesn't really solve a problem, gets lucky in figuring it out. Where with Matt Smith yeah. and David Tennant, you always felt like. By the end of it, they were on top of the situation. They figured it out. They understood it. That's and that's why it's not working because the character is written like a fool, but Jodie's playing her like she's the most intelligent being in the universe, and that's where this massive disconnect is. That's why it's not working, broadly speaking. I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we just got to the bottom of it, everybody. After three years. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Just to add to what you're saying, I I know where you're coming from because it almost felt like the, the Doctor and Yaz. Were, were almost non-present in the story like they they pop up now and again it almost felt like when he was when he'd done one Fred he'd go back to Jodie and Yaz and they just they didn't have an impact for me either watching and I think that is the problem with Jodie's doctor like with every other doctor you could buy that they were the smartest person in the room when they walked in yeah, yeah. and with Jodie it's it is a mixture of the writing because literally the, it opened with her making a mistake and getting them captured and nearly killed. And there were other moments when she was trying to be that presence, trying to sort of have her moments of the limelight. And it just fell flat so many times. Yeah, and it, ironically, it's falling flat, and yet everything is veering from one end of the spectrum to another. People are doing so much running around and, and sort of shouting at one another or barking at one another. You've got to be worried. You've got to be invested. You've got to be interested. You've got to be scared. Well, yeah, but give us five minutes, then maybe we'll build that up and maybe we'll feel some of these things. It's not enough for you, Jody, to tell us this stuff over and over and over again. You've got to put the work in. And, and Chris, Chris Chibnall's writing all of this series. Heaven help us. And Chris has got to sort of really work at these scripts and work at this law and to construct formidable stories that are fit for purpose, just the basics of working and writing for TV. I don't think the man's got it down at all. I, I look at Stephen Moffat. He wrote for his doctors. He wrote a higher kinetic energy pace when Matt Smith was the doctor. Yeah. He slowed things down when Peter Pacaldi became yeah, the doctor. Yeah, he changed his writing. Up, he, yeah. he, changed, he changed the style of how the doctor handled things, and he changed his writing to fit that. Chibnall feels like he's writing for, with this right now. It's like, okay, now I'm going to try to write for Matt Smith even though I had Jodie Whittaker as my doctor. Chibnall can't decide what era of Doctor Who he wants to be in. If you want to talk about the flux, that's the flux. We, as as podcasters, you know, we here as content makers, a lot of the time, words get bandied around quite a lot. 
and sometimes you know when we're critiquing entertainment and popular culture and sometimes i think they enter popular parlance and people just repeat them after a while without even thinking about them and one word that i hear a lot is the word mess and and people use it to describe any one of a number of things usually to just dismiss something that they don't like in a very uh, in a very offhand way sometimes really unfairly but in this instance, I, I, ha I went till I looked up the dictionary definition of the word mess, just to make sure that it was right, because it's been plastered all over reviews of this. And so, yeah, in this, in this context, the word mess, the actual dictionary definition is a situation that is confused and full of problems. Example is the economy is in a terrible mess. Mess, I hate to say it, this episode, the Halloween apocalypse, certainly does feel like one big mess you could say, well, that's, you're not meant to understand it. We're not going to get the answers for weeks. That's by the by. There are people out there that may know what Doctor Who is and doing a bit of uh, flicking from channel to channel. Other people who have, who've given this this show its final, final chance. What, what are they going to make of yet another mess to try and find your way through? I, I don't think this is going to play well. Obviously, they're making it in... You know, I'm trying not to be unkind about this. I know that, that some aspects of it have been compromised by the pandemic, fair enough, but this is the BBC. They've got facilities all over the UK, both to record on location and to record in the studios. If anybody can put together six episodes of watchable, robust TV, in theory, it should be the BBC. And yet, I mean, at, at times... And I've never felt this watching Doctor Who before. At times, some of the some of the sets of houses and things like that felt like sets from a music video or something. They felt incomplete. And the location work, even though the director of this was Jamie Magnus Stone, I've really enjoyed his work, or at least I've appreciated his work on this show in the last two years. There's been flourishes. There's been there's been evidence of talent. I, that's not coming through either. It seems strangely, as you said, Carl, flat and soulless. Uh, you talk about being a mess. That's the that's the biggest problem. We have been in a mess for three years now. It's the same ongoing yeah. mess. It's not like, oh, we can write this and have this feel messy coming out of the gate. No, you can't because you've been in a mess for three years. And so when you just keep adding on to the mess, you're not cleaning up after yourself. The, the point is, if you look at what Moffat did, you look at Russell, what Russell T. Davis is, they may have created a mess, but they cleaned up their mess by the end of the season. The pro this, this is like the, the little boy who, he cleans up his room by throwing everything into the closet, and then he does it again and again, and then when he opens the closet, <laughs> the avalanche comes out, and there we go. And I think we're at the point where we've opened the closet, and the avalanche is coming out because everything that's been done is now just coming out of the woodwork. I think we should. It's not unreasonable after three years on screen with the same, largely the same cast and production team, to expect something where the the parts to this all move with a lot more grace. It's nowhere near as stylish a show as it was to look at last year. Let alone series eleven. You know, the woman who fell to earth in particular, I felt, did have a sort of freshness about it, and was stylish. Did make a statement. This just feels kind of clapped out it started with a special effects sequence with the doctor and yaz being put into a series of uh, sort of cliffhanger type situations did they moments of peril and a what i think was meant to was meant to be a special effects showcase now 
the special effects on the Halloween apocalypse, they veered from the absolutely beautiful planets being devoured and, and various other things to the absolutely abysmal. I don't know about you, the first five minutes watching this show, not only did the the sound design seem all over the place with music drowning out dialogue and then vice versa as if somebody was messing with the settings. But this special effect, effect sequence with the Doctor and Yaz, they're in pursuit of this character called Carvanista, who we don't see for a little while. They've been suspended over an acid sea, handcuffed, and they're also attached to some sort of big floating metal bar, and they've got uh, robotic drones that are going to shoot them at any moment. There's all these levels of threat. It's clearly meant to be a bit of a caper. I'm not sure how they manage it, but Gil and Whitaker both play this completely wrong and the special effects themselves they are so cheap this reminded me of a show from the 1990s Kyle an, an old episode of Red Dwarf or a show like Lex or whatever where it was where it was all just a lot lot cheaper than the kind of budget that Doctor well, Who's got the opening five minutes were the Doctor basically playing another round of Squid Game or something like that because that's <laughs> That's how rough it was. A massive cheese dream. I did. I kind of expected that this would have been some sort of dream sequence, even that there had to be some reason why we were being subjected to this. But it was absolutely awful, Charlotte. I mean, for a first few minutes of a season coming back after you know it's been a year and a half since the last regular episode of Doctor Who, this is a reach for the audience in 2021. Surely this isn't good enough, is it? I I think it was almost. Do you know when? You've got too much special effects going on at one po- at a point, and you sort of there's so much of it on the screen. It looks farcical. The only things real were Jodie and Monique. Everything else you could tell was green screen or computers. With with effects, you have to be very careful. You have to be almost just the right amount for it to be believable or look good. And like you said, Jodie and Monique were playing it for laughs. I think that's, that's why the, the threat expression. Didn't, yeah. It didn't. The, the threat didn't feel real. They're not seemingly convinced. How can we be? Yeah, and it's like I understand. Sometimes the doctor can be a bit like, "Oh, I'm going to get off this. I'm going to be fine. Like everything's sort of good." But Jodie, once again, she's got. The, she's either been directed wrong, but I think personally, she doesn't understand. You have to still have an essence of control. Everybody knows, if you're a long-term listener of the show, you'll know that I've been through it with, with this era of the show. I'm, I am largely done with it. It snapped something with me. But, but this was just so embarrassing to watch, Kyle. Oh, this, is, this was ridiculous. You hit it on the head when you were talking about, like, Lex or one of the other 90s. Wow, did they dive into the um, Babylon 5 budget back in the day? Because that's, what the, that's how bad this CG was. And that's not knocking Babylon 5. Babylon 5 no, at the time no. was cutting edge. But yeah. it's like, yeah, we're using cutting edge edge effects from the 1990s. And it's and I agree with you because it's like, did they blow all their budget on the flux effects? Because those are beautiful. When the, when it's going through and destroying that's, that's those galaxies, they're, they're mind-blowing. And it's like, oh, well, we only have 10 cents of the dollar left here. So you add into the aspect of they're trying to play it up as this whole comedy thing. And it just feels forced again there is nothing with jody's run as a doctor that has ever felt natural and i think that is one of the biggest 
problems, and if, if it continues on here, her relationship with Yaz doesn't feel natural. Her relationship with Yaz doesn't feel like it's evolved, or if it has evolved, all the involvement has happened off screen, not on screen. I was going to ask so, you, Kyle, how long do you think we, that we're supposed to take that it's been off screen? It's been a couple of years potentially since we last saw it. Obviously, with the doctor with time travel, who knows? Yeah, a lot of time has passed since they been the two of them traveling they've been doing some bonding something stuff that we probably would be very interested in finding out about and seeing and instead we're getting them hanging from the barb over the sea of acid it wouldn't matter so much if if for example if yaz and ryan had have left because if we'd have been left with graham and the doctor because we knew graham a lot lot more we'd be able to maybe invest a little more but because yaz despite being one of the longest running companions in doctor who history we know next to nothing about her. And this relationship between the two of them, I think in the absence of the two characters that left in the New Year special, I think this really exposes it, Charlotte. Something that I didn't expect, actually, because I've seen them interviewed together, and they do seem to have a, a rapport and obviously a camaraderie, which I, I understand and respect. But I don't think I realised until I saw this episode Jodie Whittaker and Mandip Gill have next to no chemistry on screen together. Well, I just found them odd in the whole episode, and this was the start of it in this scene, because it felt like they were just shouting and not liking each other. Shouting at one For the majority of this episode. Like, they were having little, like, Yaz was having little comments, having a go at the Doctor, and the Doctor was being catty back. And it just felt... I was like, why are you acting like this? Like, what Carl was saying. I almost felt like we could have had a bit of something maybe happened off screen they were aiming for pathos well if if they're aiming for pathos then then don't make them look like i'm literally questioning by the end of this episode why are you two still together as a companion and a doctor more than that charlotte i feel that they that not only do we not know yes they feel like next to strangers still to one another there's there's no sort of personal link between them every other doctor and the companion has had a personal link, whether that's Amy, Raggedy Man, met him as a child, or it's Rose, who was very down on her life and was a bit dead-end job, and she saw this adventure with the Doctor, and she ran for it. And with Yaz, I don't understand why she's so, at some point, devoted to the Doctor, because they don't give a personal reason for that in comparison to other companions. I always felt that, even in the Jodie run, her doctor had so much more of a personal link to Ryan and Graham than she ever did Yaz, and yet the companion we're left with is the one we probably had the least connection to. In a way, it, it kind of feels like we're breaking in two new companions in this season because we do have a new, new companion, but we have a companion we really know very little about, and what we have seen has not been the greatest, no. and it just it just feels like you know, Yaz has always been the one to question the doctor, but it's just like it's like a dog with a bone. It's like it's always the same thing. It hasn't that relationship has not evolved at all, even though they're trying to say it has. And in the past, I've actually been quite forgiving, understanding of, of Mandip Gill, because I always felt there was an actress there who was hungry to do some work, who really wanted to grow this character. I got the impression that she was proud to be in the show and grateful for the opportunity. And now, after a couple of years of, I don't know, maybe backslapping, because nobody's telling any of this cast what the audience really feels about it, I feel that Maldip Gill now, playing Yaz in Series 13, it's 
a, a really basic version of what she was doing before. She she plays it with the, the kind of lightness of touch with which an elephant would play would play the piano. And who is who is Yaz now? She's not a policewoman anymore, apparently. They drop that out. Okay, that's potentially interesting. That's again, that's a road travelled, but she she doesn't seem to care. Again, why should we? She's able to fly the TARDIS. Fine, if she's been there next a couple of years, she's bound to have picked up where the odd switch is here and there. But is all that Yaz now? An extra pair of hands to the doctor? That's that. Somebody to, to fetch and carry. I just expect so much more from a main cast, from a cast that have been together for three screen years. One of the things that just is driving me bonkers with Yaz is every companion that gets with the Doctor grows in one form or another. Yaz feels exactly the same, and that, I think again that's just yeah. that's to the poor writing on 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 this iteration of Doctor Who. It's there's no growth to the characters. Even Jodie's Doctor has, in my opinion, regressed more than grown. I and agree. Yeah, and I, I just I, it almost feels like with. Uh, Yaz, at least from this first episode, you just get the feeling from Mandip that she's just kind of mailing it in, as they say. She knows that she knew that during the filming of this, she knew it's like, this is my last run on this. I just, you know, whatever. So I've been trying to work that out myself because Yaz has just sort of stood still. I think maybe it's because nothing of substance or traumatic or anything like that has happened to her. She sort of considering how dangerous it can be to travel with the Doctor, there's been nothing consequences for her travelling. Even Graham and Ryan, they didn't exit because they got, like, hurt or they got... Do you know, like, usually it tends to be, especially in New Who, when a companion goes, it tends to be because something big has happened to, to for them to go. Yeah, we and really it feel like, it. Even if we haven't particularly liked them, we do really feel it, don't we? Yeah. So with Ryan and Graham, it just felt like they just went, right, we're off now. And then we were left with Yaz. And I think that's the, that's my take on it, that she's not, the character's not lost anything. Nothing's happened to her, story-wise. It's unfortunate to see any actor wasted in a role, particularly in a major show particularly in a role that could have changed their lives. And I understand that she's already secured another another job after this, which obviously, you know, best of luck, man, in, in whatever that is. But this characterization, this performance, whatever she's doing here, this isn't working either. It seems to be a culture around the entire production. But of course, they were joined this year by, by somebody else. They have augmented the TARDIS team. The fam, 2.0. 2. <laughs> All eyes were on John Bishop, I suppose, finally making his full debut in this episode as Dan Lewis. We did see him in a sort of, what would you call it, a teaser at the end of the New Year's special. That was supposed to be a shock, wasn't it? But we'd all seen him out filming anyway in the streets of Cardiff. So, yeah, John Bishop, a very uh, quite well-known presence on British TV has been for between five and ten years as a stand-up comedian and a host of chat shows and, and things like that. But completely unknown in the States, I would imagine, Carl. So my first question is to you. How, do, how did you take to John? Or Dan? Um, or either, who, whoever. First of all, I had to turn on subtitles because yeah, he was the accent was I, kicking I in that. pretty heavy. Honestly, I, it was intriguing at first because, it's, okay, why are they kidnapping this man? And then when they reveal why, then it's like, oh, okay, well, there's really... The, the thing with him that I was more intrigued about was this whole thing with, like, 
him wanting to be a museum guide <laughs> like really that's your goal in life to be a museum guide okay um I'm, I'm so i'm curious to see what they're going to do with this character to be honest with you it, it just felt like okay we've just added another companion what's up it's was a lovable more... loser isn't it Carl? Yeah, really yeah i'm gonna be honest with you the two characters that actually pulled my interest the most were the character of claire apparently already knows the doctor and had a bad experience with a weeping angel we also had this captain of this space station who's watching the flux and he escapes at the it looks like he escapes at the end of the episode he was more intriguing than yeah that yeah, was Vinda played by jacob anderson who's only in a couple of scenes and so much so that i i keep forgetting that he was actually even in it they spent quite a long time bedding john bishop's character of dan into the show i suppose rel relatively relatively speaking and yet there were scenes of it's comic would you call it comic relief charlotte well yeah you could tell he he's sort of gonna fill the graham role that now is left with bradley walsh he's there to be have some funny one-liners some witty one-liners that's because he's a comedian so yeah. chris he hasn't really he's he knows what he's doing that way see i'm the opposite dan was the highlight for me <laughs> like of everything going on in the episode i actually quite like dan even though it's nowhere near what we got with the other showrunners this is almost the first character i felt like I sort of know him a little bit, even just from the first episode. Yeah, because and Chibnall of... absolutely knows that. it's uh, They're riding off John Bishop's considerable natural warmth as a person, aren't they? He's, well, he's, uh, yeah, he's, they're definitely dialing into that. But I do feel like he actually gave him a few scenes to sort of give us a bit of a start as to what Dan's like. Like the museum, I quite like, I found that scene really charming. Because it told me some, it told me something about Dan that he sort of he's proud to be in Liverpool. He loves talking to people and sort of showing it off to people. I found that quite endearing. And he, some of his scenes with um, Carvin Easter, I found quite fun because he sort of he challenges even the Doctor at points. He's not a doormat, and I'm I know been what you so mean. I've been so used to having characters in this run who don't challenge the Doctor, who don't challenge what's going on around them. They just placidly accept it. So at I least I know what you mean, was... and I thought there were a couple of scenes in this. I mean, as you say, the one where he was doing the tour guide thing and the one with the trick-or-treater. Yeah. To the point they were actually almost funny, which does make me wonder, did John Bishop have any input into into the script, maybe work with the material a little there, Kyle? Because that's, oh, you know, yeah. Chris oh, Chibnall maybe... doesn't do funny, does he? I'm thinking probably more improvised. Yeah, no, don't get me wrong. There's some interesting things with the with the Dan character. I'm intrigued by. I'm very down on his luck. He's got an empty fridge, empty cupboards, you know, but refuses to take the food, food from bags. the food shelter. Um, it's just just a kind of thing where a guy is too decent for his own good and puts himself in bad situations because of it. I I don't know, but and so I'm kind of curious. But again, I come back to something for me with this is. What is this going? This isn't going to amount to anything. He's here and he's gone for this run, and that's that's, no, that's it. fair enough. And that, so that makes it hard. And I, I think with, like I said, especially with the I suppose he's stitched into he's stitched into the story, though, isn't he, Kyle? Through yeah. the idea that that uh, that this character of Carvanista is there, and, and his race are there to move the human race away from planet Earth, one one by one, literally one by one per per spacecraft. So I suppose that they, that Chris Chibnall's taken the time to embed him in that. I think that's a, a way of again trying to make us invest in the in the broader plot. 
And again, I go I go back to that concept, that kind of concept along with the flux, just feels like it's from the Moffat era of Who. And like I said, there's a lot of ideas in this that were intriguing. I just am at the point where I don't trust the team that's doing it to pull off these ideas in, in a proper way. And I think that's ultimately the point we're at with Doctor Who is that... Well, once bitten, well, twice bitten, three times shy. I mean, I mean when I think about those scenes, I think that they do fall back on John Bishop's own warmth. I, I can see how on the page that material was probably was probably given a lot of attention to make sure that it did mesh with Bishop's own personality and what he could do, what he could bring. I think the problem I have, John Bishop is no he's no Bradley Walsh, he's no Catherine Tate, he's not even a Matt Lucas. More to the point, he's no actor. And in my view, he's just kind of there. John Bishop's performance was a massive disappointment to me. I've, I'll be honest with you, I'd never seen him straight act before. But I had imagined that because he was filling Bradley Walsh's shoes, let's be honest about it, I think even John Bishop knows that, because the man went and asked Walsh directly for his advice about playing this part. Unfortunately, John Bishop is not a very good actor. He's not, <laughs> he's not even convincing, basically, as himself. He looks very self-conscious. He's not very easy or natural with the dialogue, which just compounds the problem the entire production has got, with feeling inauthentic, and this material, ma material, this kind, of, this slapdash, would hinder actors with considerably more range than than Bishop. When you put them in the hands of somebody this inexperienced, you've got major, major problems. There was a scene where where Dan had left the museum and he was being not told off, but he was being kind of cautioned, coached, consoled, maybe by a woman who did work at the museum, a woman who he'd clearly asked out on a date and they were going to meet up for a drink or whatever else. Again, I thought this scene was actually quite nice. And you talk about characters that, that did made, make an impact. This was Nadia Abina as Diane. I really liked her. She also felt like a character from another show, completely that had just strayed into the, onto the set of Doctor Who. Bloody hell, it's somebody you can actually believe in. Somebody who actually seems like a person you would you would meet in real life. And when you saw them acting opposite one another, John Bishop looked so awkward. I don't know where this is going. I feel that John Bishop is clearly, clearly a nice man. And clearly doing his best. And clearly having a ball. You know, his, his voice... And his presence was really, really welcome on the Comic Con panel, for example. He's the only the only person who's got any real energy or appetite for the thing. But I don't think it can distract from the error of judgment placing this actor in this role. I think it's yet another cataclysmic Chris Chibnall decision. The question is now, because you could see in this episode, even though a lot happened to Dan, it was like material. It wasn't like really dramatic scenes. So I think the question now is later on in the run, can John deliver those scenes like Bradley? Because I can remember yeah. in series 11, Bradley was the the scene when, oh, I can't remember what episode it was, but he was back home for the first time after losing Grace. And I think this is one of the standout scenes from series 11, where he just walked into his house, there was no dialogue, the music was even quite quiet and Bradley just acted his socks off and you could feel that grief. 
you could feel that he was still hurting from Grace's loss. And that's what Bradley can do, because like you said, he's more of a seasoned actor. So can John do that? And I do think, yes, for a first episode, he was, for me, he was brilliant, but he does, I think I'll I'll need to see a development. I'll I'll need to see a bit more of that dramatic, where he can do it later on, because you can't just be the funny bloke for six episodes. You need to do something different at a point and show us what you can do. So we've got those sequences with with Dan and whatever's going on, wherever the Doctor and Yaz are running around from place to place to place. I felt that that uh, the moment with with the character of Claire, as you mentioned there, Kyle Claire, played by Annabelle Scully, this even more so. Never mind a character from another show just straying onto the set. This felt like a scene from an unseen episode of Doctor Who that had been spliced into the middle of this. It had the scene with with Claire when she was making her way home, and the and the weeping angel was stalking her from the from the middle of the road had tension it had atmosphere and despite the fact again another character we heard very little from i really believed in this character of claire and i I was wishing her (laughs) on the other side of that door away from the angel uh, to to safety and that was in in the space of how long two minutes at the most kyle this this scene really stood out didn't it yeah, no, it, it did, and it just was, again, this is where, like, you add mystery. You have this character, it's like, whoa, what's going on here? Wait wait a minute, you know, well, how does this character know the Doctor? What's what's the mystery here? That that felt like the true mystery of the of the show, not what the flux was, what who this new villain that they... It was the they, only thing that piqued my interest at all. The, the new villain had really no interest to me at all, just looked like another villain that Jim Nall designed for... The Jodie Whittaker heir. I don't. It's supposed to be this ancient, powerful being, and I'm like, um, okay, how many of those are running around at this point? What is the point of introducing this character? That's. I think that's one of the things that, really, to me, I'm I'm more intrigued about. This character came out of the blue, and yeah, so, I mean, and you could say that it is it's Sally Sparrow version 2.0, but I think that would be. Again, that would be churlish because the, <laughs> this is a, a totally different actress. This is 14 years on, and it was just those one or two moments. But it was like an oasis in a desert of drama-free storytelling, largely. It's one of these things. This is why I'm going, I want to continue with this. I want to see the, where this plot thread is going to go because I think there might be... Maybe I'm giving Tribunal credit here. I don't know. Um, there's more there's maybe more to this plot thread than we know than we realize at this point and maybe this plot thread has something to do with him trying to fix the timeless child or leading into the regeneration of into whatever the the next iteration of the doctor will be it's this just seems so out of left field that i think i'm curious any of the cards from any of these strands could fall at the moment absolutely anywhere charlotte and i don't say that with any real appetite at all <laughs> it's more a uh, sort of me measuring my expectations really based on the f- everything that i've seen that's come from Ch- from chris chibnall up to now that was a very sort of suspenseful scene for me it felt too much like he was ripping off moffat he's just copying beat for beat what moffat would do in those early angel stories like the actress was good i will agree with that when she first saw the doctor, she bought you. You bought her being like really happy and excited that she saw the doctor. She was convinced every word of that dialogue. Yeah. She believed everything that she was saying, and then in the later scene where she was being stalked, 
it was how you were describing Bradley Walsh. She was saying very, very little, but making us believe. Yeah, she was terrified, and and you can buy that. And I think we've sort of when when the character is terrified of the monster, it, it just makes you more scared. And that's just the rule with Doctor Who that we've had since its its sort of beginnings. But like I said, for me, it just felt a little bit too much. Like Chibnall was copying homework from Moffat. If that makes that's, sense. Oh, that's fair. That's fair. How did you feel about Carvin Easter, the the presence of this uh, dog? character that was dotted throughout the episode because obviously we'd seen photographs of of the character and this i don't know if you'd call it a makeup job i don't know if you you wouldn't even call it prosthetics would you kyle it is just a dirty great big hairy helmet carbonist was played by craig ells with a broad yorkshire accent isn't it for whatever reason again i don't know if it's meant to be comic relief for me, this character, whilst I can say that he's memorable, we're not going to forget this in the same way that you wouldn't... You know, I've never forgot the Pating, for example. As I like to say, there are choices, and then there are choices. <laughs> this is one, of those, one of those times. Um, somebody, somebody somewhere should have said, is this really, truly what you want to do? What you because, want to put on screen in 2021? Yeah, yeah I, I'm just... There were so many different directions they could have went, and to go this direction, and I think they did it to get some cheap jokes. Yeah, no. The irony of it, oh, here is a dog alien coming to save mankind and protect mankind. <laughs> Man's best friend. I'm just like, wow, really? This is the... This, Russell this, T. Davies always used to talk of having having the audacity and being brave enough to, uh, to uh, really go for it with designs and, re- and really try and sell your alien creatures and to be bizarre. But again, I think that he had a way of naming characters like the Mox of Balhoun and a way of imagining them because Russell would often work on those designs because he's a very gifted cartoonist and designer himself. So he would put those characters together sort of on paper as well. And, and that's why I, th- I think that they melded their identities and their exterior qualities melded really quite well. Here, I think we've just got some, as you say, some gags that Chibnall put down. And what's he going to look like? Great big dog. Nothing else. Nothing better. Nothing. Nothing worse. And we, as you say, we may get some giggles out of that. This is a character akin to the classic series villain, the Candyman. You're aware of the Candyman, Charlotte. Oh, yeah, I've seen pictures. I've not got to watch the happiness patrol. Yeah, so I think this is the same as that. And it, if there's any justice, because people, <laughs> you know, the Graham Curry and, uh, and J&T and everybody involved in the making of the happiness patrol has been taking some heat about that for over three decades. And really, Chris Chibnall deserves to take some heat for this for however long. It just doesn't work. It looks like having a pantomime horse on screen. And Doctor Who is a programme for families not for children, and there is a key difference. I, I know I'm doing a lot of moaning, but there is a lot to moan at. This episode, there are people out there who seem seem to have been really entertained by it, although there was no for example, there was no identity politics, there was no preaching, and there wasn't even that dour tone that made Series 12, it was just unbearable. It was a trial every single week to get through that, but the fact that it hasn't got those things in shouldn't distract from the fact that this is badly made television. What they did on purpose with this episode is they had a lot of 
um, plates spinning so you don't think about it too much. That's the vibes I was getting very strongly watching this. Yeah. I just think you're... you're, you're it nearly you're worked having... on It nearly worked on me. Yeah, and I think that was the point of it. Like we sort of said, chuck so much on screen, have so many things going on that your, your brain can't sort of think, like, actually, no, what's the plot here? What is the actual plot? Because if you look at the actual plot, it was about 10 minutes of Dan getting kidnapped by Carbon Easter and then... Earth under threat, humanity, so, somebody's coming to rescue humanity before this thing hits. That's yeah. pretty much it. That made up 50 minutes of screen time, so much running around. Yeah. I do want to mention a scene because it involves Carbon Easter, and there was a scene with him that just completely showed to me Jodie Whittaker's lack of being able to play this role. And it was when she first went into his ship and she confronted him and she gave the sort of very typical, I'm the doctor, Earth is protected, shove off. The scene we've, the sort of scene we've seen every doctor do before her, and it's sort of part and parcel now. It was Matt was... who delivered that really sort of yeah, the best. Didn't he? He hit it so perfectly and made and convinced you that he meant every single word. Didn't he? Yeah, and he did it with one word, run, and just yeah. that was it. And you were scared. Well, so Jodie, she was trying to confront this this creature. The longer she talked, almost the less power she had, the less authority she had. She was even yeah. basically distracted by the end of her own speech by a flashing light. It was and more was of like, that she's the what? wasp at the picnic. Jo Jodie Whittaker continues to be unrelentingly awful in the lead role and against the odds as you said Kyle, she's actually got worse and the character has gone backwards, has devolved. This woman is nearly 40 years of age. She's been acting for 20 years. How can anybody read any room this badly? Perhaps only when they're being deliberately misled? I don't know. But this is clearly now how it's going to be until the curtain fall for this character. The 13th Doctor is completely irredeemable. Even face-to-face -face with an actor, that poor actor who was in that dog helmet that we spoke about a few minutes ago, even opposite that, her character is still the least believable. A couple of things here. You talk about the Doctor being distracted by the flashing light in that conversation. All I could think, keep thinking about was the movie Up. Squirrel! Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, I again, they're trying they're to make us feel like she's a charming eccentric, but she just comes ac across as a prick. Here's what I think this is, Dan. and uh, the more it's, it's kind of hit me as listening to you guys talk and everything like that. Jodie Whittaker is playing a children's character dumbing it down for children and that that's is who what she, she thinks the doctor is yeah is she's dumbed it down for children when everybody when every other person who's ever played the doctor even though the doctor is supposed to be a children's show has played it up to the intelligence level of the people watching it jody has dumbed this down for children and i think she's been directed to do that and she's yeah. dealt to put herself in a hole so deep and she doesn't know how to get out of it that's on her as an actress you talk about her, the Earth is protected. How many times has she said that in her run as the Doctor? I mean, it feels like it's at least every every other yeah. episode. She gave it to the space racist back in Rosa, didn't she? Yeah. Kimnall's just trying to hammer home the same points over and over and over again because he doesn't think people are getting it. And I think at the end of the day, what's happened with this run is as I think the Doctor Who fans 
that have been with this ride for so long feel like their intelligence has been insulted. Well, the show has actively told us that we're awful people and that we're thick as pig, you know what, several times over. So, yeah, that's a reasonable... I mean, is, is it wrong to hope that maybe when the doctor... I mean, I, I'm going to be honest. I think the most reason people are watching this run is because they want to see what's going to lead to the next regeneration. What is the event that's going oh, to lead to the next... But I'm kind of hoping at some point we're going to wake up and it's actually this has actually been a three-year-long run Black Mirror story. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have got this thing going on with the, with this character of the swarm, who is uh, clearly uh, a captive of of the division, the division of the characters that were told or told us about. We were only ever told about these characters in the Timeless Children, and uh, that obviously connects the story to the uh, completely desecrated origin of the doctor at at some point in the in the future when it all does get tied up in in some way one can only hope that's going there i can't care about that character at all I mean, it has dawned on me something about this whole flux thing though and when you look at all the promotional art for flux you've got these giant colorful ribbon ribbons flowing around all over the place what if it's if it struck you do you think that looking back across the Whitaker era do you think that those colourful ribbons are anything to do with the rags from the ghost monument that were wrapped around the Doctor in that story when we first heard about the, the timeless child? I think you're giving way too much credit to this production. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, Dan, you, 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 you're, you're trying, but... No, I appeals to sense and reason. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> what I liked about the swarm is... For once, and I'll, this is what I was saying on that preview show, she's never had a threat. And at least the swarm seems to actually have a bit of presence, a bit of a threat to her. That he's not just going to like let her walk away or he's not going to just by chance let her win. It actually feels like he could be a bit nasty, possibly, this character. And this one has needed a character like this, I think. It was a little, I'm not going to deny, it was a little bit moustache-twirling villain. But I'll take, I'll take that. I think maybe some of the stuff that I'm saying I'm very positive about. Chibnall seems to like the whole misunderstood villain trope. That seems to be what he likes to write. And at least with this one, obviously we don't know a lot. He was very much as well, you just got enough to know he's going to pop up at another episode and we'll learn more. He even teased that the Doctor has met him before and the doctor didn't remember him so my guess is he's gonna be something to do with that timeless child plot maybe he'll know a bit about the answers to that or he'll be connected because he could literally also go into her mind and that's very so that shows that there is something between them, but we just don't know what that is yet. See, yet again, we've had we've had the rags that reached inside her mind. We had the master strapped into that machine and narrated the entire, what seemed like the entirety of the timeless children. And now we've got more of the Doctor not actually doing anything, of somebody committing a sort of mental assault on her and potentially revealing other sides to herself that she can't locate for herself. She's so passive in the entire era, and it's clearly going to continue right to the right to the very end. The cliffhanger 
ending to the episode, Kyle, with the uh, the universe. You mentioned the fact that the universe was beautifully uh, exploding as the flux made its way uh, across the across the stars. We we saw it consuming planets, didn't we? And that was the threat that was that was bigger than the Doctor. By by this time, the Doctor, Yaz, and and Dan, they're all in in the TARDIS, and it's all going down. This is meant to set it up and ensure that we are there. We, the collective, we, the you know, the average person sat sat there waiting for Strictly to come on. That we are there next week. Do you think this is going to compel people to watch? As much as people would like to keep drive drive slow and rubberneck at a train wreck, because that's yeah. where we're that's where we're at. I mean, it, it's sad. People are either seeing, I think, are at this point are watching it because. They just they they're in utter shock of what's going on. I mean, and don't get me wrong. There are people who love this, and I not and I don't want to begrudge them. They they have every right to love this, and if it's their cup of tea, that's wonderful for them. But I just feel like this is directionless, and it's at the end of the day, anything that happens with the remainder of the Chimnall air is meaningless. It's it's we know Russell's coming back. We know he's going to put a stamp on Doctor Who again, like he did back back in the day when Eccleston brought Doctor Who back to life. We're basically, I think by the time this is done, that's what Russell's having to do again. He's literally having to come in and just com- re-completely reinvent Doctor Who because uh, there has been so much damage done over these past three years. And Doctor Who needs to have a reinvention of it to refreshen it, to properly tie its history to a, no- a modern world. And in this case, I think what the Chimnall era is going to come down to, for me at any rate, is they brought somebody in who tried to, instead of adapt and respect the traditions of the Doctor and adapt it yet again for the world today, it's somebody who tried to force feed us something that nobody wanted to, to eat. You're going to take take your medicine and like it, and too bad, so sad. <laughs> when we come back, we're going to check in to see how many people took the medicine out there across the world. In the great viewing public, we're going to look at the ratings, everybody, and see what's going on there. That will be when we return. There's a whole universe, a multiverse of unmissable geeky talk going on right across the Fandom Podcast Network. And here's a quick word from our Kevin about all of that. Then you can meet Charlotte, Kyle, and myself back here for more of our review of the season opener. Thank you for listening. We hope you're enjoying this podcast. We'd like to continue to feed your ears by inviting you to listen to these other great shows on the Fandom Podcast Network. It starts with our flagship show, Culture Clash, discussing the latest in entertainment pop culture. Blood of Kings, Immortals Take Notice, our show covering the entire Highlander universe. Couch Potato Theaters, where we celebrate our favorite movies. Time Warp, the Fandom Flashback Podcast, discussing a year in movies and our favorite retro movie, and TV pop culture topics. Good evening, discussing all things Alfred Hitchcock. Union Federation, our Star Trek and Orville show. Hair Metal, the 80s and early 90s rock metal podcast. Type 40, our show covering the time-traveling Doctor Who universe with host Dan Hadley. Lethal Mullet, an 80s and 90s action film podcast with host Adam P. O'Brien. Also check out the Lethal Mullet Network for more great podcasts. What a Piece of Junk, a Star Wars podcast with hosts Scott, Derek, and Nathan. Making Treks, a Star Trek podcast, a deep dive into the final frontier with hosts Mark Newbold and Adam P. O'Brien. And check out our newest shows, 
The Fandom Show, our monthly fandom podcast network live YouTube exclusive show about the month's hottest topics in fandom, and the FPN True Believers MCU podcast discussing the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the related Marvel television and streaming MCU universe, including the connections to the original Marvel comics. You can find the Fandom Podcast Network on several platforms. Please subscribe to the Fandom Podcast Network YouTube channel to receive notifications of new podcast episodes and live events. You can enjoy all of the Fandom Podcast Network audio podcasts on our master feed at fpnet.podbean.com. The Fandom Podcast Network is on all major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and iTunes. You can find the Fandom Podcast Network on Facebook. You can email us at fandompodcastnetwork at gmail.com. You can also find the Fandom Podcast Network on Instagram at Fandom Podcast Network and on Twitter at FanPod Network. Thank you for listening, and remember, respect others and enjoy your fandom. Yes, we've teased and tantalized you there, and we can even clothe you too. There's merch to match all of those shows, including Type 40. If you head over to tpublic.com, you can search for the Fandom Podcast Network there, and you'll find us store full of all the team colours for all of the podcasts on everything from the t-shirts to phone cases and tapestries seeing is believing treat yourself treat your other selves and it all goes to support the fandom podcast network into the bargain so everybody wins yeah we're back here with uh, kyle and charlotte to uh, pick through the rubble of the series opener of series 13 of Doctor Who, otherwise known as Doctor Who Flux, the Halloween apocalypse, everybody. <laughs> Last time on Doctor Who, the other cliffhanger, I suppose you could call it, was the fact that the ratings had got progressively worse through the entirety of series 12, to the point where in recent press releases that were talked about the upcoming changing of the guard, from Chris Chibnall to Russell T. Davis, the BBC themselves even acknowledged the fact the ratings had fallen, which has been the very first time that they'd done that during the entire era, in spite of all the articles and all the fan conversation. See, we do have our ratings. We have the overnight figure for the Halloween apocalypse. That's been published. We've also got AI figures. Fact is, Kyle, it's still not a very pretty picture. Things are down even more than they were last year. Okay, it's not by a massive drop. It's not a sheer drop, but it's bit by bit by bit by bit the audience are deserting this show and absence has not <laughs> has not made the hearts grow fonder in this instant charlotte so what we've got is we have the uh, the overnight figure for the halloween apocalypse it's the lowest rating for any new doctor who series opener since it come back in 2005 for the big relaunch scoring only 4.43 million viewers overnight on that Sunday night. Series 12's opening episode, that was 4.88 million viewers. Okay, that was on a public holiday. That was, that opened on New Year's Day, didn't it? That was Spyfall Part 1. And wherever we look all over the world, Kyle, it's the same story, that the figures are even worse in America. I, I think that the ship has sailed on this iteration of Doctor Who. Again, this, to me, it all comes back to the fact that a few weeks ago we had the announcement Russell's take coming back and he's taking over people started checking out they're like what what I have no emotional attachment to this run of the doctor why am I going to stick with it when I know what's that it's going to be everything's going to be changed drastically 
And again, I think the people who are sticking with it are either people who truly love Jody as a doctor and have loved this run, and again, more the power, all the more power to them. People who just like looking at a train wreck, or people who are legitimately curious as to, okay, how is Chibnall going to get out of? How is he going to wrap up the timeless child? How, how, how? What is going to lead to the cause of the regeneration of Jody Whitaker's doctor into a into the new doctor? And I, because I think that I think if nothing else with Doctor Who. The idea of what's going to cause the next run of regeneration is always something Doctor Who fans are going to want to see, and I'm curious of how we get there. And I think, but I think that's the only thing that's holding on to the fans that are sticking with it. Here in the states, there was a big boom for Jodie when she first came in. She had that huge appearance at San Diego Comic Con. It was at the height of the of the really the height of the Me Too movement and a big women's empowerment movement here in the United States. And Unfortunately, we have short attention spans here in the U.S., and we've been on to many other things since then, and it's lost in the cycle. And Doctor Who is lost in the fandom cycle right now. I don't think it's just the U.S. Charlotte, I've taken a few phone calls and texts this week from people, from people who know me, who may not see me all the time, and people who aren't on social media and and, uh, listen to podcasts or watch YouTube videos or things like that. So I've had people reach out to me and say, oh, is Doctor Who back on this week? said yeah and the, the first question they ask is is she leaving in this then say no that's next year oh okay cheers that's it conversation over so that kind of supports what Carl was saying people have dialed out and they, they'll they may come back to see the 13th doctor go the same way as all the others which does seem superficial but it's understandable isn't it particularly when you're talking about a cultural cultural icon like like doctor who that's sort of that runs parallel with the history of television itself. I don't think any of us can look at the casual audience or the audience that have fallen away and necessarily and think bad of them for having deserted this show but wanted to come back for those pivotal moments. Yeah, no, because even though Doc, um, Jodie's Doctor has not been embraced by the British public, the Doctor as a character is still beloved. The Doctor is still a part of, like you said, our cultural landscape of television. The, the character's not gone down in people's, like I said, their excitement or love. So they will come for the new Doctor. I do really think that. But this is what I've been thinking about another angle with these ratings. And I think this is quite stark. That this era has not got a stabilising viewing figure yet. They've not managed to hit a figure where it's relatively kept. It's been, like you said... A bit of a drop, a bit of a drop, a drop, drop for every episode. That is scary for any show. If you can't have a stable viewing base, then you're done because you. Charlotte, it's unprecedented. This trajectory, that drop, is unprecedented in the entire history of this nearly sixty-year-old TV show. Yeah, and I think there was always going to be a bit of a drop because it was so much of a curiosity factor. The female Doctor. I think they were almost setting themselves up. They might have thought it would give them viewing figures long term, but I think it actually was always going to harm them. Because people who might who probably didn't watch who for a good amount of years or maybe just watched Russell's run and didn't watch any of Moffat would come for that first episode because it's a female doctor. But that men in in that first episode, they had to impress probably more than any other doctor. Even Matt, when Matt was cast, I can remember there was a bit of, oh, he's too young going around. 
but the eleventh hour did its job. It got people. Yeah, people to go. won over. People yeah. won over within minutes. Whereas here, you've got people more and more, bit by bit, it's being chipped away at. People are leaving time after time after time. This is even down on the New Year's Day special episode by 0.26 million down from that. Over in the States, it's a considerable... Well, when I say a considerable drop, it's a drop that the show cannot afford. At least on the States end, I think a part of it is the issues with Doctor Who, but there's another factor that's really affecting the US here, and that is streaming killing network television. And it's not just that it's killing, you know, your traditional networks here in the US like a CBS, a Fox, an NBC, an ABC. Streaming is taking over. You have shows that now are going exclusively to these companies streaming service instead of going on their actual channel because most more and more people are going just to internet and to then to streaming services only. And a perfect example I can give you of this is this, is CBS has taken at least three of their regular network shows this year and has moved them to behind the Paramount Plus paywall. And you cannot now watch these shows on oh, the really? CBS network. So shows yes. that have got an established built-up audience. Exactly, are now going behind these streaming services. And I'm going to be honest with you. At this point, Doctor Who, at least in the U.S., would benefit more of, hey, it's getting released on a streaming service. People would probably pay more attention to it. It's and, on HBO Max, for example. Well, but it's but again, because of how it is with HBO Max, it, how it's not been marketed on HBO Max because Warner got so concerned about with their decision to make movies the same same time they come out in the theater on HBO Max. They've been hyping that. Doctor Who was supposed to be a big push for them, and it's become an afterthought. I think they have to look at a streaming service to carry Doctor Who, and they have to maybe make some kind of deal with HBO Max where the new seasons, the new episodes come out on streaming at the same time they air. Because I think, at least here in the U.S., a lot of people are getting away from network television, including BBC America. And then so BBC, BBC America hasn't got its own sort of catch-up the way that we have an iPlayer here, then? HBO Max has the exclusive rights to Doctor Who, to new Who streaming. I see. In, in the U.S. Now, you have like in here, you have Pluto TV, which has all the classic who's on it, as well as other ways to get the classic who's. But current modern who, the only place you can find it streaming is on HBO Max. And the problem is HBO Max isn't marketing it. And again, BBC America has become a joke. BBC America is basically reruns of old shows. And that's been basically it. It's, it's sad. And it's just, but it's the way things are changing. And I know that the status of television over where you're at is changing too because a lot Very much so. you have this a lot the tv licensing thing is just drastically changing and streaming is just opening and opening it up and i really do think in the at least in the u.s the streaming aspect is one of the biggest contributors to doctor who's ratings being down because if it's not on a streaming service it's like it's on regular tv no i don't think so i, I want it on my streaming service when i can watch it at the time i want to watch it. that's convenient for me the difference is in the uk traditional television it is suffering but even on bbc if we just look at bbc shows they have got a few big shows that they can get 10 million on a night watching line of duty bodyguard there's been a few for the last couple of years there are several aren't there the idea that there there aren't shows like that anymore that that just isn't the case and yet we hear people apologists for this era trotting out that one all the time So that's whenever I hear that, I go, well, how come on the BBC can get those figures when it does a quality programme? 
I mean, Line of Duty, that was, was it last year? The, the, I'm trying to remember now, I think it was last year. And that was breaking every record for the live viewers and the catch-up. They did well on both fronts. So the BBC can do this. I've seen people who are endorsing these ratings because there are other shows that have either experienced ratings drops too or that don't get as many viewers, don't get that 4.4 million or whatever it was. But the way I see it, there are shows all over the television landscape. Some get uh, smaller figures, some get greater figures, depending on what kind of show they are, what slot they, they fill, what their place in the television landscape and culture is. The question, the only question that is really worth looking at is what is the potential audience for Doctor Who for a show with this amount of cultural relevance, with the breadth of appeal, the fact that it is supposed to be watched ideally by the entire family altogether, but it's certainly aimed, it doesn't exclude anybody, or at least it's not supposed to, Chris, it doesn't exclude anybody. It's one of the broadest appeal shows on TV. I would argue that the, the potential audience for a show like Doctor Who is still, in this day and age, looking across at the line of duties and those kind of shows, the potential audience, people who want to want to watch Doctor Who, meaning that you have to give them a reason not to watch it. I think that it's reasonable to expect that between six and a half and seven and a half million people per week would watch Doctor Who if it was of a good standard. Yeah, and that's going to be the test for Russell, because if he can get those viewing figures back up when he does come, then that's going to even more show that this era was not doing well, that it was failing. I suppose the drawback there is, Charlotte, the fact that that's going to be another another two, yes. two and a half years before <laughs> Russell's got a regular series on, in which case the question, the situation that Carl's talking about, that will have evolved even more so, won't it, Carl? Yeah, I, and, I, and I think there's a, still a lot of play going on over at Bad Wolf and... By the time Russell's new iteration of Doctor Who comes out, there could be a whole shift of control on Doctor Who, and there could be a whole shift of that BBC is maybe taking more of a back seat, and, you know, Bad Wolf looking maybe possibly acquired by Sony. HBO has kind of been putting some pressure, pressure on with the Doctor Who situation. We have this quote directly from the BBC this very week, Carl, because it was all over the press rumours that the BBC had lost control of Doctor Who in favour of, of Bad Wolf. They'd lost all creative input whatsoever. And they issued a statement almost immediately saying that we're incredibly excited about the future of Doctor Who. BBC Studios is ultimately responsible for delivering the show and this production partnership is about long-term investment that will radically build on the already huge success of the show and franchise worldwide. So this okay. this statement really pricked up my ears, and I think I think yours too, Charlotte, because mm. it wasn't actually any contradiction of those reports that had made it through to the mainstream press, certainly in the UK. Read between the lines here. BBC Studios is ultimately responsible for delivering the show not making the show delivering yeah. the show is the key they have, it, phrase what there what i get from this kyle is they they have given up creative control of this show and aside from putting that in the plainest of plain english this is then pretty much saying so and issuing a statement kind of in an attempt to take control of the narrative back but not actually say anything that directly contradicts that which had been put out there into the into the media when russell takes over I think you're going to see some things with Doctor Who 
that you've never seen before. And I think the first thing that's going to happen is that you're going to see possibly one, if not two American writers brought into the writer's room for... I'd like to think so. I'd like to think they start I, 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 I really, truly do believe before it is all said and done, J. Michael Straczynski will write an episode of Doctor Who while Russell is running the show. That would be nice. When you think that we've had those big writers that have come to the show just for those one, one-off episodes, people like Frank Cottrell Boyce, the Richard Curtises, maybe, maybe it's possible. I think there's enough respect for Russell that some of these writers are willing to, are going to be willing to do that, and I think Russell is going to break some tri- Doctor Who traditions that have been probably long overdue to be broken as far as the creative yeah. side of Doctor Who, and that. I just think that that's that's where we're at with Doctor Who is it's, it's like we're just waiting in anticipation for the savior to come in a way but <laughs> I, but but I also but I also caution on that too because it it's been 20 years and you know there's going to be an uptick in ratings when Doctor Who comes back under Russell because people are going to be curious people are going to be doing that we have to what you, what you have to watch is what the long-term play out is of that entire first season that russell does are the ratings going to stay high or is it going to be a peak and then it's going to valley out again and then and in that case then we have to say has the doctor just been timed out i mean that's that's something that i we have to start wondering if when russell comes in there isn't that improvement of the ratings is it is the doctor been timed out or is it just time for the doctor to go for a while and let us have a chance to regain a proper appetite for doctor who or is it time for the doctor to be off of terrestrial television and put into a streaming platform to fit more of the modern era of entertainment consumption i think by the time that this season plays out we'll have a better idea of an answer to that really big question only got a few weeks to wait everybody i mean i thought the halloween apocalypse was a next to total mess for all of the uh, of the effects that made your eyes sort of pop out of their sockets for one reason or another it wasn't as agonizing as the previous series but i think that the fact yeah the fact that it's laid off the identity politics and all that finger wagging just for 50 minutes shouldn't distract from the from the realities of this episode being a really quite pitiful start, loud and clumsy, a, a kind of brand of all the gear, no idea TV, that I wouldn't be fooling anybody, least of all myself, if I endorsed this for a single moment longer. The audience appreciation figure was 76. That's the, the lowest in 15 years since Love and Monsters equal lowest in the new series of Doctor Who history. That's a score from the Audience Appreciation Index. How many dog biscuits out of five do you give the Halloween apocalypse, Charlotte? If we're doing it out of five, I'll give it a two, purely because of Dan and the swarm, because at least, that, like I said, that villain had a bit of a threat. I think he could actually do some something quite nasty to Jodie, because even though I like Sasha... He became too over the top by the end of his master, so I almost can't take his master seriously anymore. Whereas with the swarm, at least I can. And Dan, so I'll give it a two. But I do agree it was better than some of the things we've had before, but it was it was a lot of noise, it was a lot of flash and bang, with not a lot of substance for me as well. I'd, I'd hold with that. How many dog biscuits out of five do you give the Halloween apocalypse, Kyle? I, I agree with Charlotte. I'm going to give this two. 
again, I'm going to come back to the fact that they do a little rewriting, and this is what we get two years ago as the introduction of Jody as a doctor, and with this idea and everything like that. I think this it, things change in, in one way or the other. Now, whether it's still we still end up in the same final point where we're at right now, it's hard to say. It's a very distinct possibility. But I would have liked to have seen them take this idea and lead it off with our introduction of of Jody. I do think that I'm interested in the swarm. I'm interested in Claire. I think that I think there's some things that in the periphery that are interesting that will make me continue with this and not quit on it. But it's just again, I, I come back to the same thing that I, I reiterate. We know this is it. So it, everything that happens with this in a way still feels anticlimactic to me. So it's just, hey, can you do enough to keep a few things interesting that I'm <laughs> my curiosity stays peaked enough till we get to the end of this? That's more than fair. Like yourselves, I can't realistically offer this. Even a two is really pushing it for me. But yeah, I'll I'll match it. I'll I'll offer my two dog biscuits for this one too. Halloween apocalypse if this was not the best of starts but Doctor Who continues on BBC One in the UK and in the US on BBC America for the very the handful of people who are still interested for the next five weeks we'll be here with further reviews helping one another through Chris Chibnall's opus opus of oblivion here on Type 40 a DVD has been announced everybody a DVD a Blu-ray and a steelbook with beautiful artwork by Alice X Zhang on an Amazon exclusive Blu-ray release. That's just been listed for 30, how much is that? 37.99. That's the retail price with the DVD itself. That's just 17.99, which seems a bit more reasonable to me for just six episodes of Kelly. But yes, the uh, the series itself will continue on the weekly for the next few weeks with the next episode War of the Sontarans everybody. We did get a brief look at the Sontarans in the Halloween Apocalypse, but I'd sort of forgotten about it. I'd sort of forgotten about it. The redesigned Sontarans, those perennial bad guys created by Robert Holmes. So whenever characters like that reappear, you're guaranteed to get a lot of the classic contingent of fans who are going to sit up and pay attention, and particularly when they've been sort of reimagined as they have. Charlotte, are you a Sontaran fan? Have you got any predictions for that episode? I don't love them or I don't hate them. Maybe that's because I grew up in the new in New Who, and I know they they, they were very different portrayals and the different vibe than classic. If he does the sort of if he really does go into the sort of the war mentality of the Santarans, that could be interesting. But there's a big worry I've got with Sunday's now episode coming up. It's a historical, and Chris has not got a good track record with historicals. Whenever he does do historical figures, they tend to come off as props. Like, they're just there so he can say, look, I've done an episode about insert historical figure here. And he doesn't tend to flesh them out that well. And I think it's Mary Seacole, unless I'm, I've got that wrong, which is a, she's a fascinating character. And I think any other showrunner, I would be really happy that she was in an episode. Like, sort of, what we've all sort of said, I don't trust Chris Chibnall with that character not to tokenize her because one of the worst episodes was rosa and you could you could almost say there's some similarities with rosa parks to mary seacole when it comes to what they're famous oh, for 
and what the sort of their I've got to be honest I, I've not heard of the lady but yeah I, I am aware that this is set during the Crimean War and yeah any I agree with you any historical any historical situation has been I mean it's always with Doctor Who we get a cod version of history in Doctor Who it's not a historical drama it's a fantasy and that should come with certain disclaimers Kyle have you got any predictions for this are you glad to see the Sontarans back I'm curious to see what's going to happen there but as far as predictions go at this point with Chibnall playing <laughs> let's throw it all let's throw the whole bucket of paint against the wall and see what it looks like could go um, anywhere could go it absolutely could, it, anywhere it could, it could go anywhere and it wouldn't shock me and that's that's just incredibly scary when you're to that point in your writing so this episode it's, uh, it debuts on the 7th of November on BBC One yeah, that's the old girl starting up and calling time on this trip in the TARDIS. I'll be back with another edition of Type 40 soon. Look out for that wherever you found this. It could have been on the dedicated home feed for Type 40, type40.podbean.com, or on Spotify, TuneIn, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher. You can check out our social media, Instagram and Twitter, at Type 40 Doctor Who, or get in touch through our email, Type 40 Doctor Who at gmail.com you can find all of our podcasts too over at the fandom podcast network's master feed which is loaded with all those treats for your ears daily and if you're feeling really brave and fancy some real time extra dimensional chit chat you can always head over to the type 40 facebook group that's five years old this summer and stocked with companions of all generations and regenerations geeking out about classic and new Doctor Who. There's always something to to talk about, to enjoy, to discuss in the Type 40 Facebook group. Kyle, what are you up to this week? What's going on on the Fandom Podcast Network and what should people look out for? Our True Believers Marvel podcast will be myself, Mr. Kevin Wrights on Lee Fillings is talking about Eternals, which will be coming out here later this week. If you're looking for what's something interesting on there now, we've been doing our Time Warp show covering the films of 1981, and we've actually put out a couple of episodes, one covering the films from September and October of 1981. Plus, because there were a lot of um, scary movies that were very influential in the year of 1981, the first couple of the Fandom Podcast Network, Kevin Reitzel and Aaron Gill, and Aaron Gill is the master of all knowledge of scary movies, did a special focusing on all of these scary movies that came out in 1981. Um, top to me, in my opinion, in my opinion, by one of the greatest of all time in American Werewolf in London. Fantastic film. One of my all-time favourites, in fact. Just one of my favourite effects ever in movies. Yeah, it's a really fun show, that is. All those... It's it's sort of like browsing through the shelf of my DVD collection and, and dusting one or two off and thinking, oh, I haven't watched that in years. Thinking to yourself, I'll, I'll drop that in into the rotation. Also, too, we, will, we are going to be having... Um, our Union Federation show covering all things Lower Decks and soon the newest addition to Star Trek animated, Star Trek Prodigy, which I'm just going to say on here, um, if you're a Star Trek fan and haven't been real pleased with the live action side of Star Trek, the animation side is nailing it right now and doing some phenomenal work. Charlotte, where can people hear and see more of you out there on the internet? Do you do social media? No. (laughs) You'll find me in the type 40 facebook facebook group so I'll, I'll i'm in there so i do comment on threads and stuff so that's when you can if you want to chat with me and have a bit of a d- discussion I'll, I'll be there and you'll hear me on on the live streams type 40 live every thursday when we have a good old laugh we have lots of fun 
Yeah, they are very entertaining. The Type 40 live live streams are now available as podcasts too on the type40.podbean.com feed. Lots more hours worth of, of Doctor Who rambles and reviews. Things, yeah, we do get a bit raucous on that show, but it's lots of fun. I also want to remind you that our last episode, Type 40, with Paul Joyce, distinguished filmmaker and artist Paul Joyce, was good enough to spend a couple of hours talking to myself and Simon Horton, not just about that amazing career, but specifically about the legendary production process of getting Warrior's Gate, that classic 1980 Doctor Who story, getting that to the screen that so many myths had built up around that whole time about Paul himself and the various other things that had gone on. He addresses all of that. Kyle, where can people cook up with you on social media? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at AKyleW or on Instagram at AKyleFan and of course anywhere on the Band of Podcast Network Master feed at fpnet.podbean.com. And you can find me. I'm scattered throughout all of space and time, but mostly on Twitter and Instagram as the Spacebook, where I'm rambling and posting about all things geeky inside and outside of the TARDIS. Try stopping me. Thanks again to the both of you, and thanks to you for listening. We always have the time. If you have the space here at Type 40, don't miss the next Doctor Who Flux review. That's coming soon, but for now, yeah, that's it. Take care. I'll speak to you soon. Bye-bye. A Doctor Who podcast is a space book production for the Fandom Podcast Network with music by Problem Being.